Welcome, everyone. You're listening to the Gerbert Mayer Gauge, the podcast on light matter interaction. I'm Dugan. And I'm Jay. And we are here today to talk about subject that's both near and dear to Jay's heart, but also incredibly timely. What is that topic, Jay? So today we're going to talk about surface plasmon resonance-based biosensors. Uh, These kinds of things have been demonstrated for detection of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that's what we're going to talk about. I think it's going to be a really relatively brief, hopefully accurate podcast, (laughs) but... (laughs) Uh, but I will disclaim that I'm not a huge expert in the details of biosensors, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about plasmonics. And why I started thinking about these things particularly is like every year we have approximately like 100 freshmen that enter into what's called the Honors College here at William Patterson. And they recently started this thing called the Honors Research Seminar because kind of one of the features of The Honors College is that there's like a very strong scholarship and creative expression component because you could be like a music major in the Honors College or you could be a biologist, et cetera, right? You could do all these things. Mm -hmm. So they wanted a class that was kind of like an orientation to, you know, research scholarship, creative expression across like different um, disciplines or like modes of inquiry or expression in the college or in the university. So uh, I put in a proposal and like the call went out. It was like late February, I think. And I was like, oh, I really want to do one of these and I'll do it on energy. A week or so later, um, you know, the World Health Organization, you know, informed us that um, now in the middle of a pandemic. And I was like, maybe there's got to be some way that I can kind of connect to something related to covid 19. And so I ended up deciding to pitch a class where we would design surface plasmon resonance based biosensors using the software package that my group develops called WP Thermal. So then basically I ran that class this fall and I learned a handful of things about these biosensors as did my class, but I'm certainly at a novice level. I would say, given your the depth of your knowledge in plasmonics, even if you're you're coming at this particular application with you know a novice's understanding of engineering aspects of the actual detection devices, I think I I, I think you're underselling your qualification to talk about this because understanding the actual physical mechanism by which that detection occurs is the most important part of any sensor, right? Yeah, I think so. I I also want to make sure I wanted to create, in addition to a genuine desire to be modest, I actually also want to create space to bring on a guest who maybe comes from an engineering background to talk about these at some point in time. Okay, so I guess maybe before, before we get into the specifics of these applications and biosensing, maybe we should talk more specifically about surface plasmon resonances to begin with. You know, we we certainly talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, but maybe there's some people who haven't listened to our entire back catalog, which 
would be weird and surprising, but. So yeah, surface plasmon resonance involves uh, metals and light. And so basically it is an interaction between uh, light and the surface electrons of the metal. This can happen in a bunch of different contexts, but by far the most common context for these sensors would be a thin metal film that is deposited on like a prism and you shine light from below the prism. And as the light goes through the prism, it picks up momentum because the prism has a higher refractive index than the air. And then the high momentum light can couple into these, into this motion of the electrons on the surface of the metal. So it's, it's kind of weird. And we'll put up a picture of these configurations, but, but basically what you would imagine is like, you've got a thin film of gold that's deposited on a prism and then you shine light from below the prism, but the actual surface plasmon is on top of the metal. So it's like on the opposite side of the illumination. And really what happens in that excitation is that you have like a light wave, which is basically hybridized with the electrons. So it is actually a polariton and oscillations of the light are occurring in concert with the oscillations of the surface electrons. And that's kind of generically what a surface plasmon polariton is. And it is a resonant phenomenon because it has a specific energy and momentum associated with it. So that's the resonance part of it. I'm trying to think of sort of like a, a verbal cartoon, if you will, maybe a more, a more simplified picture for our listeners who might not be too familiar with optics. But basically the idea is that you have this thin film of metal, and depending on what metal it is, a certain wavelength of light will be able to interact with the electrons at the surface of this metal in a very special way that you can exploit when you're trying to, I don't know, I was doing so well until the end there. Yeah. No, 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 you're, you're exactly right. So, so right, certain color of light, but I, I use the word momentum, but what I really should have said is angle. I mean, how you control the momentum of the light in this case, in the direction that you care about is by changing the angle at which you're shining the light. And I also said prism and I really, I, I could have just said glass. So you've got mm. very thin film and to be even more specific, it's very, very thin. <laughs> so like on the order of 50 nanometers. So that's five billionths of a meter. So it's very, very thin. I don't even know how many monolayers, how many atoms thick that is, you know, a thousand atoms thick or approximately something like that. Right. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I know one thing that people always like to compare things to is relative to the diameter of a, of a human hair. Yeah. Which is about 50 microns. So we're yes. talking about a thousand times smaller than that. Yeah. Thousandth of a human width of a human hair. Absolutely. Yeah. So very, very, very thin. So thin, in fact, that like, you know, if you were to look at it <laughs> on the slice, right, you couldn't, you couldn't really see it. But when you look down on the film, you know, if you deposit, let's say like a postage stamps area of such a thin film, it actually still looks faintly gold. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but even but, just, uh, I mean, I, I've deposited films as thin as five nanometers before. And yeah. You can still definitely see it. You can still definitely see it. It's very cool. But the, the faint, faintly gold, what I mean by this is it's not completely opaque. So, if, you know, you had a gold mm-hmm. ring or something like that. So, so that's now like tens of millimeters <laughs> thick, something like that. Tens of millimeters. I don't know. That's a big ring. That's a thick ring. Okay. It's several <laughs> millimeters thick. Several millimeters. Thick. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. That looks completely opaque. You can't see through it. But these thin films are thin enough that, that they are only semi-opaque, which is really important. If they were completely opaque, then you couldn't have this excitation because light actually has to travel from like the bottom side of the film all the way to the top side of the film to actually interact with those surface electrons. Right. And so how, how, how does one make a a film that thin? I believe one makes a thin film like that by like basically spraying atoms onto a surface. And you know more about this than I do, but there's things like sputtering, which I think basically just means that you take a piece of gold that's already fairly small and then get it really hot so that some atoms basically spray off of the tip and then they land somewhere and you just make sure you have a nice substrate. You make sure you have a nice glass surface for them to land on. Yeah. I mean, you're basically just, yeah, you, you have a target and then you just blast it with, with usually like argon ions to just knock individual atoms off. And so then you get this fine mist of atoms that then travel toward your target. Yeah. And it's really, really straightforward. It's, pretty quick it gets you very very uniform films you have you know sub nanometer control of thickness it's it's awesome sputtering's great atomically precise spray painting no because it's i mean it's it's inherently not atomically precise because the idea is just if you have this completely random process by which you're absorbing a metal onto a substrate atom by atom with enough atoms, you'll eventually get something approaching a uniform thickness, but it's certainly not how you might like to think about a, a perfect monolayer on top of a perfect monolayer on top of, on top yeah. of a perfect monolayer. Fair enough. Okay. But, but given that, yeah, we're talking about 50 nanometers thick, like several hundreds to a thousand atoms, that's, enough atoms by which you are within plus or minus a couple across the entire surface of, of your film. Yeah. But it does sound cooler to say atomically precise spray paint, maybe yeah. like almost atomically precise spray paint. Yeah. I do think the spray paint uh, analogy is, is very, very good though. Okay. Uh, that's how I imagine it anyway. It's like spray painting. Yeah. But yeah, so then that material, that divide, that is basically the component, which is really the active component in the biosensor, or I should say the operative component in the biosensor. And so one of the advantages of these biosensors is they're pretty simple. And then, you know, you can imagine a lot of different ways in which you're going to like set these things up to actually work. Okay, so you, you have this component, which is capable of supporting a surface plasmon surface plasmon plariton. And then the, the question is, well, how is it actually sensitive? Yeah, what do you do with that? SP? What do you do with it? 
So one of the things about, um, okay, and so, and so we already mentioned that there is this resonance aspect of it, which means that light of a very specific energy and momentum, which we can think of in sort of more colloquial terms as like a light of a specific color and with an angle of incidence through that uh, prism, because you could, you could imagine like, I've got this, you know, stack of gold on top of glass and I've got like a green laser pointer below it. And I could just be shooting it like straight up through the glass, like at a normal angle, or I could start to like tilt the laser pointer a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, usually at a fairly steep tilted angle that you actually excite this surface plasmon plariton. And because you have all of this action going on at the, at the top of the gold film, right on the surface, then the plasmon itself becomes extremely sensitive to the environment of the surface. And so what that means is that you can actually change the resonance condition by making very small changes to the surface. And so what I would call like a gross change to the surface would be taking like your gold film with nothing on it. So it's just like air above, then gold, and then the glass below, and you shine light from below and figure out where you actually excite this surface plasmon polariton. And then, you know, then I decide to like wet it. I just drop a few drops of water on top. That would be a gross change. That would change the resonance condition like super dramatically. I should say, how do you know what the resonance condition is? You actually detect the resonance through reflection. So you've got on the same side as you got your laser pointer, you have a detector. And you might imagine that such a piece of glass backed by like gold or silver would be a really good mirror. And you would be right, except for at the angle where you actually excite this surface plasmon resonance. At that angle, it's a terrible mirror. So you go from something that reflects nearly 100% of the laser pointer to something that reflects almost none of the laser pointer. So you basically just get like an angle dependent reflection uh, signal that has a gigantic dip right at a particular angle. And if you were to go from like the situation where you just had nothing on top of the gold to the situation where you have water on top of the gold, you would see a change in the location of that dip that was probably like 10 degrees or more. Okay. Um, What you really are trying to do in the biosensor situation is make a very small change to the environment, but one that's detectable. Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out because the surface plasmon uh, plariton is so sensitive to its environment that even really small changes lead to a, de- a detectable change in the resonance angle.
yeah, I think that was a fantastic explanation in terms of what you would actually be looking for when you're when you're doing this sort of measurement. So yeah, then I guess the last piece of the puzzle is well, if I put something on the surface, it's going to change the resonance condition in a way I can detect. But how do I make that specific to be able to look for whether a particular sample I collect has the coronavirus in it? Yeah. And I'm guessing it has something to do with coating the surface with some sort of protein that will bind a protein from the virus, but I don't actually know. So I'll, I'll let you explain. Yeah, that's a, your instinct is absolutely correct. That is good. <laughs> pro- probably, yeah. So, um, so what you can do, there's a whole bunch of, there are a lot of proteins that can covalently attach to gold. Anything that has a nice style hanging on. Yeah, it, right? that's right. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I keep saying gold. It's not for the optics of gold, although the optics of gold are fairly favorable for this thing. I think it's the combination of the optics of gold and the chemistry of gold that make it really favorable for these kinds of things. So you can attach proteins to the top surface of the gold, and you would want to pick those proteins so that they bind to something that is specific to the virus. So with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we have that spike protein that actually binds to your ACE2 receptors in your body, and that's actually how the virus enters your cells. Right, right. So that would be one target that you could imagine is like you you basically want to stick a bunch of those ACE2 receptors or, or proteins that behave very similarly to those receptors on the surface of the gold. And then if you actually had the SARS-CoV-2 virus present, then the spike protein would, would bind to those proteins. And then you would basically have virus particles that were you know, basically stuck to the surface of the gold. And that change, if you could actually get the particles to stick to the surface of the gold, that would change the environment enough to change the resonance angle. And so the macroscopic scale, to be slightly more technical, what happens is when when you start to increase the amount of stuff that's packed into the surface, you basically increase the concentration of anything that's solute-like in the surface, you basically increase the refractive index of, mm-hmm. of the region right at the surface. And that's the thing that, that actually changes the, uh, the resonance angle. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I think if, if you're thinking about it in terms of just the amount of stuff, then I'm guessing that that means you'll have some sort of sample. So, you know, someone does a swab and then that swab gets vortexed in some, some buffer or something. And then you, you put that on the, the surface of, you know, the gold that's coated with this receptor protein. And then I'm guessing you need to have some way of flushing away all of the other biomaterial that, that isn't specifically bound to the protein and then removing all of the water and everything else to make sure that the difference is, is just from whether something has bound to the protein or not. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think, um, in the actual device setting, you basically have something like a microfluidic okay. device. So you've, you know, you've got, you basically have like a chip, which is your glass with gold on top that's functionalized. And then it's kind of encapsulated in some kind of microfluidic 
chamber and then you would stick that chip in a in a device that's going to be able to like scan a laser pointer and, and measure its reflection and then you have a way of just flowing the liquid through that microfluidic and then you know if you just are continuously like flowing sample what you'll do is establish like an equilibrium of bound virus particles to the receptors to unbound ones and so there's going to be like kind of this characteristic rise in response of the that you're measuring, which is just the change in angle, and then you know, kind of like a plateau, and then depending on the uh, binding kinetics, then it'll die off again. But that would be the way that you could you could you could actually get a lot of information from such a, a scan. I mean, I think really for the detection, you you really just want to know that there is a response. So you're saying that you can see a specific response from the virus binding to the protein even with the fairly you know, on the on the nanoscale very thick layer of buffer or whatever else that's carrying the sample oh also yes. on it yes so wow I mean, I, okay yeah. that is crazy yeah so i guess the way to think about it is like you you kind of have like a few different densities to think about and the refractive index uh, it, it is to good approximation, just proportional to the density. So you've got kind of like this density of proteins functionalized to the gold in the buffer solution without any sample. Yep. And then if there's actual virus particles in the sample, but they're not bound, actually to to very good approximation, that density is the same as as just the lone buffer. Okay. It's really the binding of the of the um, virus wow. particles to the surface proteins that actually changes the relevant density. Because one thing that is really important is the surface plasma. So you're right. So you've got, you know, the 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 microfluidic chamber would be very deep on the nanoscale, but mm-hmm. the surface plasma on polariton itself is strongly localized. Sure. Okay. to the gold surface. So really it's only, you know, it's really detecting the tens of nanometers from the gold surface into the fluid. And that's all it really is sensitive to. And by the time it gets out into like the bulk solution, there's barely any plasmon to do any sensing. So it's a okay. very localized phenomenon near uh, as, a, as a function of the distance from the surface of the gold out into the solution above. So it's very sensitive to exactly what's going on right where those proteins are. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's, that is, that is very impressive. There's one other thing. Which, so I, I, I was digging around for some papers. So when I started this class, I knew that this had actually been turned in, you know, for the H1N1 pandemic, an SPR biosensor had been developed, surface plasma resonance biosensor had been developed. Turns out also for the SARS outbreak, there had been one developed. And I, and I should say, I mean, there are academic papers about them. I don't know if that means that they were deployed on any kind of large scale, but they were at least sure. developed. But for the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an ACS nano paper that used, and I, I should I should clarify, but I'm not going to go into details about how they're different. They use, instead of a gold film, they use these nano islands. So that we're talking about a slightly different plasmon called a localized surface plasmon resonance, but still the idea is the same. It's very, it's a very localized electromagnetic field coupled to these electrons. So it's very sensitive to the local environment. They use that, um, the, the change in resonance condition as a detection scheme, but also use the fact that the localized surface plasmon resonance 
has an impact on the local temperature as another way to increase the specificity. And in that case, that sensor was not based on binding to a protein. It was based on binding um, to the nucleic acid sequence of the genetic material of the virus. And mm, so okay. they basically functionalize the, these gold nano islands with complementary nucleic acid strands. And, and so like evidently you can have very similar sequences that will bind, which creates a problem for specificity, but there's a, a strong temperature dependence to the binding. So like if you have, let's say like the perfect sequence and then a sequence which is slightly different, the perfect sequence will be more robust to temperature increases, right? Because it's a more stable binding. Whereas the mm -hmm. slightly imperfect match uh, will melt off at a lower temperature. So mm -hmm. they were able to both use the sensitivity of the optics of these things to detect picomolar quantities, but also were able to use the fact that they could basically melt off imperfect matches uh, using the sort of the intrinsic heating of the plasmon resonance. So I thought it was like super cool. I had never even. So from, from that, like that aspect of it was, is the goal to be able to distinguish between different variants of the virus? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I actually don't know because I didn't read the paper carefully enough. My, my, uh, my suspicion was that it was really just a question of false uh of, of ruling out false positives mm -hmm. because, okay. um, you know, there, you basically, when you talk about a sensor, you kind of have these two different figures of merit. And one of them is sensitivity, which tells you how capable are you of detecting small changes in amounts of, of the thing you're trying to look for. So that's obviously really important. You want to be able to detect very small quantities of, of your virus or some signature of your virus. And if you're, if you, need to get quantitative information, then you should be able to reliably distinguish between, you know, one nanomolar and two nanomolar, for example. But then there's this whole other thing, which is like, well, how do you make sure that you're only detecting for the signatures of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and not some other coronavirus, which may have a very sure. similar protein or some other virus, which may have very similar genetic material. And that's the question of specificity. And, and those two figures of merit are not, they are not, uh, you know, the dot product is not one. I don't know if they're necessarily orthogonal, but, but, but they are not strongly correlated. Sure. So one has to think about both of those things if they're, they're really trying to develop a really, truly good sensor. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. I guess detecting different variants of the virus likely would mean you know, looking for entirely different genes, which would mean you would need multiple yeah. complementary strands that are that are binding that you're looking for. The I would speculate, though, that what you're saying is also extremely important. Just, you know, there were there was this period of time where we were getting major news sources were like readily publishing this data about the variability of the COVID-19. I, I don't know what the right, right word is, but, the you know, basically showing us how much genetic variation there was as COVID-19 was spreading, right? right? So it was like, I mean, that is that is obviously an important question. Like you want to know how fast the protein, I mean, how fast the virus is mutating and how yeah. it's mutating. So that, I mean, that you could be right. It could be very important to be able to distinguish um, those kinds of subtle variations within the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So. And, and I mean, certainly if you have different variants sequenced, you could 
synthesize different complementary DNA strands sure. to act as individual sensors for each one. But I, I, I think it's just very exciting to think about the possibility of within a single sensor, not only being able to detect the virus, but figure out which variant it might be. I mean, this is just something that's on my mind now, especially, you know, for the record, we're recording this on January 6th, 2021. So there's a lot in the news now about the the British variant that is, right. you know, 70% more contagious or something like that. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think the thing that um, is most, uh, I, I, I really like the, the idea of using, using DNA because, you know, it's really easy to synthesize custom DNA, but I really like the idea of using the protein viruses spike attacks or latches on to, uh, to infect, you know, sort of reclaiming that and, and taking that, that protein that it has evolved to be able to bind very tightly and, uh, taking advantage of that to be able to to be able to detect it. It's much more poetic, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I should say also one of the advantages from a sample prep point of view of using this you know, something like the spike protein or some other surface protein is that you don't have to do a lot to your sample. You can kind of imagine, like you said, you know, I go and I collect some saliva or I go and I collect a nasal swab, but hopefully some saliva and not the nasal swab. And then I just, you know, kind of like introduce that raw sample into some buffer and like put it in. And that's kind of it as opposed to like having to, you know, lice the, the, the virus and like extract its DNA or whatever. Is it DNA or RNA? I don't know. Extract its genetic material and like amplify (laughs) it and do all that sort of stuff. Right. So it's sort of like, you know, if you're really concerned about a test that's like easy to use and rapid and robust, then then it does seem that something that is sensitive to the surface proteins um, is is really key. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess also in theory, I'm trying to think about the prospects for reusability. I imagine you'd have to remove the the binding protein from the surface and then and then bind fresh protein to be able to reuse it. But again, because it's an, you know, the binding is an equilibrium process and it would be sensitive to the concentration, you know, the, the concentration of bound would be sensitive to the concentration of the unbound. So if you introduce a buffer Mm -hmm. that has no virus, then that should be a good way to, to basically refresh the, the surface. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're using a microfluidic too, you're, you can flow as much empty buffer as you need. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds it sounds great. Why are we messing around with all these PCR assays? That's right. Well, yeah, good question. I, <laughs> um, Eliza, I, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just add one of the challenges in, that I um, put my class through. So, you know, I was like, okay, I mean, fine. You know, this sounds like a great sensor, but like, you know, gold's kind of expensive and, uh, just as a creative exercise, let's like try to think of a different way to do kind of the same mm-hmm. thing. And so I, I kind of set them to the task of trying to imagine as many different ways to make a mirror as possible. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, there was like, there was this group that was like, well, a CD is like a mirror, you know, like as in like a compact disc. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, sh- I felt it necessary to say that because there's like, 
you know, so this is a freshman class and I'm not sure all of them have even used CDs. I don't know. Cause some of them were just kind of like, had this attitude like, yeah, these relics of the past, they're like super cheap. No one wants them anymore. No one's like even knows how to use them or has the devices to play them, which is like basically true. Like I don't actually own a CD player outside of my car anymore. But anyway, long story short, a CD is like a grading. And Mm -hmm. one way to realize a grading in a configuration that works is is to make something called a brag reflector. So I thought that was a really creative uh, insight from my students. So we ended up trying to uh, create a brag reflector based biosensor or simulate one, which turned to work out pretty well, not quite as well as a plasmonic one, but pretty well. So I was impressed with them. Nice. Yeah. When, uh, whenever I'm, I'm first teaching my students, my gen chem students about diffraction. Well, I shouldn't say whenever I should say I tried this once and I just got a bunch of blank stares again, I think because of the age gap in terms of technologies that they're familiar with. But I was talking about, um, you know, the difference in uh, groove density and therefore wavelength that you use for CDs versus DVDs versus Blu-rays and how that allows you to store more and more information. And they were just kind of like, CDs, DVDs, like what? Yeah. (laughs) I've heard of those. (laughs) I don't really know what they are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, do, do you think that that about wraps it up i think that about wraps it up yeah all right i'm I'm excited that this is much earlier than i expected us to have um any sort of a, a bio focus on an episode, uh, but I'm glad that we got there because I, I, I certainly think that, you know, left to my own devices, we would have never gotten there. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, very exciting and yet still sticking with our, with our tagline, a podcast, the podcast about light matter interaction. I think I found the tagline. Okay. This is the Gerpert Mayer gauge, and we live within the friction of life. <laughs> you, I don't know if you get that reference, but I actually went back and listened to no the. Cr- you have no idea what that. Okay, so I I had to go back. You know, after we talked about um, the gift of game, well, we after we talked about the <laughs> POD cast episode of the gift of game. Against all suggestions, I actually listened to most of the Gift of Game and the the intro, you know, is like mm-hmm. this, you know, very brief. I think it's like a 30 second spoken word um, yeah, yeah. intro. And Welcome it's like, this, this is crazy town. We're not evil. We just cause trouble and have fun. Yeah. We're not evil. We're not good. We're somewhere in between. We live within the friction of life. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, when you first said that, okay, so yeah, just like an hour ago, while I was doing my ITB stretches, mm-hmm. <laughs> I listen to Roach Coach when I do my ITB stretches, and I heard them talking about this album, and they talk over the songs a lot, so so I didn't catch that line 
But my initial reaction when you said it was, I really hope he's not serious because that is some of the dumbest. Oh my God. It's one of the horrible. Dumbest I've ever heard horrible. in my life. I, I still remember this day very clearly when I learned that that Crazy Town was in fact a new metal band and, and not just like a whatever Butterfly is band. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, um, there was this guy in my, I, I took a, did you take a keyboarding class in high school? Uh, I, I did. I had to, we had it like once a week in fifth grade. That was the extent to which I had Oh, okay. To. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a much better idea. So I, I had, well, I not really because I still can't type. I still use oh. like three fingers to type. Oh, maybe not a good idea. Well, I, fi- I finally learned how to type when I was like, I guess 16 or 17. It was like my sophomore or junior year in high school. I guess it must have been my junior year because, yeah, because Butterfly was released in what, 2001 or whatever. Even though the album was out in 99 or I had that right? I don't know. Yeah, whatever. yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we know way too much about Crazy I, Town. Yeah, I, it's, this, is, I'm, this is all just a facade. I'm actually a huge Crazy Town fan. No, so anyway, so I was sitting Jay in is, Jay is mayor of crazytown.com. <laughs> That's right. So um, I was sitting in keyboarding class and it was kind of this, I didn't know anybody in the class, but it was this weird class because we were, you know, in this computer room. So we're all very close to each other and all and all like basically like in each other's business because of how the computer tables were configured. And also like I was just mm-hmm. like, was like a creepy wallflower and just like listened to people all the time and like never participated in conversations. So that was just my thing. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I remember like, um, there was this guy I, who, if I just, I, I, I can't remember his name, but I vividly like remember his, like his appearance and his affect and, and everything. He was just like, like, I can imagine him being like a radio DJ now, like for an alternative rock station. Like he reminded mm-hmm. me so much of, um, the sort of commercial alternative rock station in Atlanta it was called 99 X. And he reminded me so much of like a 99 X DJ at that time. And was like extremely passionate about a lot of music that was, you know, slightly non-mainstream, but mainstream enough to be on commercial radio. So like a, like a Matt Penfield character. uh, Who's Matt Penfield? Oh, he he was like, he was exactly what you're describing, but he was on MTV. Oh, 120 minutes. Oh, bald guy. No, probably. Okay. For, I, I, I imagine absolutely. Yes. But I, very sad I don't know who this MTV VJ is. Did you not watch a lot of MTV growing up? Uh, I did from like 94 to like 96. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you missed them. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, he was just like talking to some people about... Um, different music and crazy town came up and, and people were like, Oh my God, I can't believe you like crazy town. He's like, no man, crazy town is a metal. Band. They played at Ozfest. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so that, that, that was just like an incongruity detected for me, but, but it turns out he was right. Yeah. I now know. Although I guess a lot of, a lot of bands played Ozfest and family values that are, as I've learned from listening to a lot of Roach Coach recently, there are a lot of bands that you might 
expect to be more new metal than they are based on the fact that they played either of those festivals and then, yeah. and then you hear them and it's like, oh, they really just had like one or two new metal songs, huh? Yeah, yeah Crazy Town's like the opposite. Yeah. Their they have one like popular one... song wasn't <laughs> new metal. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to the Science episode of Roach Coach and they were arguing that that album is not new metal despite it being the most new metal of Incubus's discography and uh, the fact that Incubus was on Family Values when that came out. But I don't know. I think that's quintessential new metal. It, yeah. I, I have he doesn't heard... scream that much, but no. that's like the only, only objection you could make. New metal in reality is a much more, you know, diverse category of music than like, yeah people would think based on a few like flagship bands, but, um, but it did have me think actually on the topic of Incubus, like when I, when I was listening to (laughs) the gift of game and butterfly came on, I was like, Oh my God, this sounds exactly like the red hot chili peppers. And it turns out after listening to the POD cast, they sampled the red hot chili peppers. But like, to me, there's a, there is such a obvious through line from the red hot chili peppers to Incubus particularly yeah. like in i mean i don't know fungus among us, 311 and yeah yeah but fungus among us really sounds like it could be a red hot chili peppers album but uh, but do you I call mean, uh, like I, let, i'll put a caveat on that it sounds like it's trying really hard to be <laughs> a red hot chili peppers album. Yeah. i don't like the chili peppers don't get me wrong i really can't stand them but Fungus Among Us is not a good album. <laughs> um, okay, fair enough. I like both that album and a lot of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But would you call them like, I mean, what would you call them like proto new metal? I mean, they definitely. Oh, yeah, have- yeah, sure. I, I, I do have to add this one last piece of trivia that I found when I went to Matt Pinfield's Wikipedia page. The killer song, All These Things That I've Done, is about Matt Pinfield. What? Okay. Well, that's going on the playlist for this episode. Thank you. 